0: The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the body belongs to Christ. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word, and we thank you for the teaching of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, and may your spirit direct us in the truth that we might see Christ more clearly and understand more fully the life we are called to lead in him. Direct us and keep us, we ask now, in Jesus' name, amen. As a general rule, the reality of something is to be preferred, isn't it? What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, suppose that you like horses, and you have pictures of horses at which you enjoy looking, and books about horses that you enjoy reading, and for a time that's your experience with horses. But then imagine that through various circumstances, after pining away to own a horse, you are actually able to acquire one and, and it's yours. You you take care of it, you ride it, and you get to see this living, breathing horse. Every single day. It's a beautiful creature and you form a bond with it and you get to know its personality and so forth and so on. Well, isn't the reality of actually having a horse better than the previous condition of not having one, even if it means having to clean out the stall? Of course, and and certainly we could apply this line of thinking to any number of things, situations or conditions in our human experience and the principle would still hold true. Well, Paul's argumentation here in these last verses of Colossians 2 convey a similar logic as Paul more concretely moves into the imperative section of the letter wherein he explicitly tells these believers how they are to live in the light of their salvation in Christ. Paul's argument continues to build and build. And as we reach the the central point, even the climax of his theological argument in verses 14 and 15, now he's working out the further implications of what it means that the handwriting to the debt to the law was taken out of the way and that the principalities and powers were disarmed at the cross. Remember the paradox that Paul presents, that in Christ being shamefully placed upon the cross and crucified in seeming defeat... He was actually procuring the shaming and defeat of these powers. The crucifixion of Christ turns the cross from a sign of defeat to a sign of triumph. Even presents Jesus as the emperor as leading the victory parade over his enemies. And now, having reached this crucial and climactic point in his argument, Paul even more forcefully presses home the admonition for these Gentile believers not to be taken in by Judaism in any form or fashion, which continues to be the crux of his argument in our text this morning. And if we understand chapter 2, verses 6 to 23 is comprising a larger section even having this kind of overall chiastic structure, then we'll see how the theology that Paul establishes in verses 6 through 15 correspondingly applies. Also, while we might think or hope that Paul's language would get simpler at this point, uh, these verses actually contain some of the trickiest phrasing in the letter. We'll consider some of that a little bit, but I don't intend to get too far into the weeds given the overall force of Paul's admonition remains clear. And to be sure, what Paul has to say to the small town church and the warnings that he gives applies to our situation and circumstances as well so that we might grow and mature and more capably pursue the life into which we've been redeemed. So Paul gives the first of two significant commands where he writes in verse 16, Therefore, let no one judge you in food and in drink or in feast or new moon or Sabbath. The fact that Judaism is in view as the possible threat to the Colossian Christians comes more clearly into the view in in this list that Paul gives. The, The Jews, particularly those of the Diaspora, those who were spread out through the Roman Empire, were distinguished from their Gentile neighbors by what they would and wouldn't eat or drink. Of course, in keeping the Old Covenant calendar, they had certain feast days or festivals that would have been different from the pagans. Still more, the mention of New Moon marks the first of each month and the lunar calendar by which Israel was governed. Recall that the Old Covenant takes place at night. Paul's mention of Sabbath kind of seals the deal that the five characteristics here are distinctly Jewish in nature. And Paul's command is clear. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone pronounce an opinion regarding right or wrong when it comes to these things. And be sure to appreciate the force with which Paul is speaking here. This isn't just a suggestion. This isn't just friendly advice. No, this is an apostolic order. Paul then proceeds to back up his command with what he goes on to say in verse 17, where he starts to give his reasoning. Which a shadow it is of things being destined, moreover, the body of Christ. Now let's pause for a moment and develop a theology of shadows, if you will. We might be inclined to think of shadows as something bad, of some evil person hiding in the shadows or something like that. And there are plenty of examples of such imagery. But that's not how Paul's using it here. You know, what does a shadow necessarily entail? What's needed to make a shadow? The object that causes the shadow and a source of light. For example, if on one of these hot days you're outside for a while, and you want to cool off uh, and get out of the heat a bit, you might go into the shade under a tree. What's the shade but the shadow of the tree? And what creates the shade? The tree blocking the direct sunlight from which you're seeking relief. Even when you look down on the ground, what do you see? Perhaps an outline of the tree, the branches and the leaves. We might even say that the shadow is a reflection of the reality of the tree after a fashion... But of course, the shadow isn't the tree itself. And that's essentially the perspective we need to keep in mind here with what Paul's saying. These are things, these things are shadows, and they serve their purpose, but you, you don't choose the shadows over the reality. A similar line of argument employing similar language and imagery is found in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 8, in extolling Jesus' position as the high priest, the writer then states, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And then he goes on to elaborate the more excellent ministry of Christ and the new covenant that has come in him, and that the first covenant is growing old and obsolete and would soon vanish away. Why is that going to happen? Well, you know the answer. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 would act as the final nail in the coffin of the Old Covenant. Similarly, Hebrews chapter 10 begins, "...for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near." Again, shadows serve their purpose, and it's a good one for a time, but when the reality comes... The shadows are no longer necessary. And so Paul is making the case to the Colossians. All of the rules and regulations and times associated with the Old Covenant and its calendar are basically obsolete. They're passé. Granted, they'll continue for another decade or so, but the fullness has come, the body of Christ. That's a literal rendering of the text. Now, the translations and scholars tend toward rendering this phrase, the substances of Christ, and it's understandable to a degree, but it isn't consistent with how Paul uses the word throughout the letter. Here in verse 17 is the fifth time he's used the word body, and he'll use it three more times, with the sixth being just two verses later in verse 19. In all of these uses, Paul clearly means body, and the translations render it that way, So it seems to be the better part of wisdom to render the term in consistent fashion here. Granted, what Paul says can be challenging to navigate and might leave us wondering to which body of Christ he's referring, the physical body of Christ or the church. In perusing various sources, I was relieved and thankful to find that John Calvin makes the same connection with the language uh, to the body, and he understands it to be Christ himself, and I think that's the best way to take it. He writes, For the substance of those things which the ceremonies anciently prefigured is now presented before our eyes in Christ, inasmuch as He contains in Himself everything that they marked out as future. Hence, the man that calls back the ceremonies into use either buries the manifestation of Christ or robs Christ of His excellence and makes Him in a manner void. Now, this makes sense of how Paul argues and Here's, he's continuing with the arguments he's already established by applying the theology for which he's already laid all of the groundwork over the course of the letter. The reconciliation that Christ achieved through his bodily death upon the cross, a body of the old flesh of Adam, which was circumcised upon the cross, was the fulfillment of the old covenant ceremonies which pointed forward to Christ. And that being true, then you don't go back. You don't go back to them or you don't fall prey to thinking that they're still necessary despite how ancient they might be, how much history they have, etc. The apostle continues to press his point in verse 18 where we find the second imperative that he gives in our text this morning. His wording is a bit tricky, but the overall point is still clear. Let no one decide against you, desiring by lowliness and religion of angels, which he has seen entering into at length, in vain being inflated by the mind of his flesh, So Paul commands the Colossians, don't let anyone decide against you. It's kind of like as an umpire. This is the only use of this term in the New Testament. It can even be rendered, don't let anyone rob you of a prize. And Paul's argument is fairly simple and straightforward. It goes something like this. Don't let anyone cheat you out of the prize that you already have in Christ, trying to convince you that there's a humbler way or that you need to have some type of experience with angels. That person may have an appearance of piety or holiness, but he's just puffed up for nothing and is directed by the mind uh, of his flesh that's stuck in the old world in Adam. And and appreciate how Paul is coming alongside the Colossians and exposing uh, Judaism for what it is. Now, say you have this fellow from the local synagogue trying to convince a Colossian Christian that his religious experience doesn't go far enough, that his claims about what he has in Christ aren't humble enough, or that if he really wants to be spiritual, then he needs some type of angelic encounter or needs to humble himself under the angels. After all, they're powerful creatures that do God's bidding and are worthy to be reverenced, etc., in the old covenant we know that angels were used by god to rule nations even as we read about in daniel 10 and it's fairly likely that some of the false religions that arose were on account of fallen angels being worshipped baal Kemosh, and others we even read about angels being involved in the circumstances of nations in daniel 10 and should also remember that when the pre-incarnate son of god appeared to men it was as the angel of yahweh angels were a big deal and so there seems to be a stripe of Judaism that is promoting this true humility and that it's arrogant for man to think. He's above the angels and so he needs to humble himself beneath them. Doesn't that sound pious? You know, Doesn't that sound wise? And isn't there a certain appeal to think, wow, angels are so powerful and maybe it, it is a good idea to reverence them, etc. But Paul is adamant that all of this is for nothing that it doesn't serve any purpose and really is just a form of false humility. Why does Paul think that? Why does he say that? Because Christ has come. If you go and read the first two chapters of Hebrews sometime later today or this week, it will be all that clear to you. But listen to just these couple of verses from Hebrews 1 as the writer describes Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited it is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is greater than the angels. And in Christ, mankind has been restored to his rightful position over the angels as the writer goes on to detail, a man is no longer subject to their tutelage. Angels were used as teachers, as tutors, even drill sergeants, we could say. God even gave His Word through angels. But then when Jesus came and accomplished His work, that all shifted. After the ascension of Christ in Pentecost, who became the angels? Who became the messengers? Men. In addressing His letters to the seven churches in Revelation, when John says, "...to the angel..." He's referring to the pastors of the respective congregations. Now, this doesn't mean angels are completely retired, but there's been a significant shift in their duties and their position over mankind is no longer in place. And why not? Because Jesus, the man, is on his throne in heaven and the church is there with him. To submit to angels now, after all that Christ has accomplished, is a false humility. And it's to go back to the shadows. And that's all part of Paul's point as he continues to argue in verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from which all the body through the joints and ligaments being supplied and being held together grows the growth of God. Now, don't stop taking hold of Christ of clinging to hang on to him. If you let go of him in order to grasp onto something else or someone else, then you're missing the point and you're not going to grow. Growth comes from the head. God grows you through the head, who is Jesus. Don't separate yourself from Him, and don't let anyone convince you that you need something in addition to Him. You can probably hear in Paul's argument how this is further application of the doctrine that he's previously established in the letter for the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ and how the Colossian believers are to stay put in Him. Here in verse 19, we... Should We should understand Paul referring to the body as the church. And then if we're detached from the head, well, we won't grow. Of course, that's true of a physical body. And I'm not intending to be graphic, but without a head, the body can't grow. This is true even in a physiological sense in that it's from the brain, which is in the head, that signals are sent that the pituitary gland operates, etc., which tells the body to grow. So Paul's analogy is valid, even in a more modern context, not that he needs that validation. And the growth that comes from the head is the growth of God. It comes from God, has its origin in God the Father, because it's connected to Christ. And surely we can also conclude that the growth comes through the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, whom has been given to the body, the church. Well, Paul doesn't take his foot off the gas pedal in verses 20 to 23, but punches it to further drive home the point. If you perish with Christ from the order of the world, the stoicheia, why, as those living in the world, do you submit to dogmas? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which are all in decay for being used, according to the commandments and teachings of men, which is a word having wisdom and self-inspired piety and humility and severe discipline of the body, not in value to anyone for the satisfaction of the flesh." In verse 20, Paul comes back to the point he made in verses 8 to 14 and refers to the stoicheia, the order, the principles that govern the world before Christ. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word for world, cosmos, two times in verse 20. And it's important for us to understand what he means by it. There even seems to be a parallel idea in his thought through juxtaposition, as he mentions death and life. The Colossian believers died. They perished with Christ, which again goes back to the previous section. And all that Christ's death on the cross accomplished and the union that the church has with Christ by virtue of baptism. But then Paul asks why they are living as though they still belong in the world governed by the stoicheia, this old order. And understand what Paul means by world. The, The old world before Christ, the world of the old covenant, the world in Adam. The apostles saying they're dead to that old world and shouldn't live as if they weren't. And what does that entail? Submitting to the dogmas of men, the traditions of men that declare, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And what's Paul doing here? Well, he's quoting the law given in Leviticus 11, particularly relating to clean and unclean animals. Paul is addressing the Judaizers' application, of the Old Covenant ceremonial law, which no longer has any bearing since Christ has not only come as the fulfillment of that law, but even more has definitely dealt with any and all uncleanness on the cross. Don't go back to that. It's just a shadow. The fullness has come. And Paul goes on to refer to these things as the commandments and teachings of men. Now, does this mean that we throw out all the Old Testament? Well, of course not. And what became Judaism doesn't directly correlate to Old Testament faith anyway. Even as we've noted in weeks past that Jesus himself combated the Jews regarding their human traditions, which they would placed above God's word. Paul is doing the same. Judaism was a corruption of the Old Testament Scriptures and therefore is man-made and to be completely ignored. But still more, we have to understand that the Mosaic Law pointed forward to Christ, was fulfilled in Christ, and was put to death with Christ. Power it once had no longer applies. However, it was also resurrected with Christ and has been transformed and is a rule of life for us, but not unto bondage, but unto dominion. See, there's a sense that Israel was always limited, that the training wheels of the law only allowed them to go so far. But now in Christ, the training wheels are gone and the church goes farther in Christ than Israel ever could. If what Paul has already said weren't enough, he goes on in verse 23 to say that these things may look like wisdom, being super humble and various forms of asceticism, of going to physical extremes with the body, thinking it will make you more holy. But they're not. They're perishing and actually don't accomplish what is claimed, but the very opposite. Paul's tone throughout has a deep note of irony and he hits the punchline here. Those who are supposedly against the body, against the flesh, only end up satisfying or indulging it in another fashion. And maybe this can go without saying, but clearly Paul isn't promoting a form of Gnosticism here which is sometime how um, he's read, particularly with what he goes on to say in chapter 3. But that's not the case. Paul isn't anti-living in this world. Rather, he's anti-living in this world as if Judaism was the secret sauce to it. And understand this key point, which may be stated in the obvious again, but Paul grounds his critique in Christology. He grounds his critique in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no need for Christians to treat their bodies severely because of their connection to the circumcision of Christ, which you will recall is Paul's way of referring to the death of Christ. The flesh was dealt with there. There's nothing that can be done in addition to what Christ accomplished to defeat sin. You don't need Christ plus something else. You don't need Christ plus a hair shirt. You don't need Christ plus fasting six days a week. You don't need Christ plus only eating water and bread or sitting on top of a tall skinny tower for weeks and months on end or whatever forms asceticism has taken over the centuries. Now, of course, Paul isn't promoting a free-for-all even as he'll go on to instruct in chapter 3. But when the reality has come, when you have the fullness, you don't leave that to go back to the things that are shadows. No, you reject them. Well, We're not facing the threat of Judaism in our own circumstances. But what are some of the ways that Paul's teaching still applies to us as a church today? In the first place, consider the importance of being connected to the head, to Christ, in order for you to grow and mature. And to be connected to the head means to be part of the body, which means that you're connected to other believers. As one writer exhorts, The New Testament also affirms that our experience of God and salvation does not reach us independently from the church. We cannot grow on our own without Christ. We cannot grow on our own without other Christians. Therefore, we only fool ourselves if we think we can find our meaning, purpose, and significance for God through an isolated contemplation of religious truths. That comes only in a community of believers bound to Christ and to one another. if you keep yourself apart from Christ and His community, you're guaranteeing your spiritual malnourishment that you won't grow and mature. Here is, is where the means of grace are given. Here is where you're chiefly fed. And unnecessarily absenting yourself is to engage in a form of asceticism that the Apostle Paul would resoundingly condemn. Second, we should readily reject and oppose any teaching or philosophy that takes away from Christ, that diminishes what he accomplished, that portrays him as deficient in some form or fashion. And this can manifest del- manifest itself in a variety of ways, but let's return for a moment to Paul's referencing a religion of angels and see how might that further apply how that might further apply to us. Of course there's some fascination with angels in our day and age and There have been and are plenty of TV shows and movies that produce an angelology that's a far cry from how angels are portrayed in the scriptures. But understand that angels were set in place by God to govern the world, and it's not hard to imagine a certain fascination with these heavenly beings. But following Paul's logic and what he's taught so far in his letter, what's the circumstance of the world order now? Jesus is in charge. And that's far better. And because Jesus is in charge and we're seated with Jesus, then that means that we're over the angels, that we're in a higher position. And so to seek to submit to them again, which might be couched in pious sounding terms of false humility, would be a demotion. But more importantly, it detracts from what Christ accomplished in establishing mankind back to his position of taking dominion over the world. Adam gave up his position to angels when he succumbed to Satan's temptation. Jesus has regained that position, and it's for us to recognize this reality and fact and never go back to the bad dogma of such thinking. Furthermore, in related to this, we should reject any form of teaching or tradition that places something in the way between Christ and the believer. What do I mean? Well, consider again how this religion of angels, this worship of angels, could be portrayed. Don't you want to have contact with these powerful heavenly beings? Might it not be advantageous to have their ear and see what they might accomplish for us? Or again, under the guise of a false humility, doesn't it sound kind of arrogant that you can go straight to God? And besides, what could it hurt to possibly have the angels helping you? What's going on with that kind of thinking? Something is being placed in between the believer and Christ. How is that better? How is that advantageous? It's not. You know, according to the New Testament, you're as close to God as you can get because you're in Christ. Your experience of that will change in glory, no doubt. But by faith, we know that we have full and immediate access to the throne of grace. And we don't want anything or anyone getting in the way. And here, as, as happy Protestants, is where we part ways with some of our brethren in other parts of the church who promote praying to various saints. I know they have their arguments for it, but in light of the teaching of the New Testament, it just doesn't seem to hold up. Why would you want anyone getting in the way between you and Christ? You have direct access to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the sovereign ruler of the cosmos, who is all powerful, so why waste your time going to someone under him? What's more, where is the biblical evidence that those who are in glory with Christ in heaven can even hear our prayers? Are they given powers that are somehow superhuman? You know, plenty of Roman Catholics pray to Mary and even think it's a more humble thing to do because Jesus is so busy and he's a king and ruler. And, well, I can probably relate more to Mother Mary. She's more inviting. Mothers, let me ask you something. How many of your children can you listen to talking at the same time when they're clamoring for your attention? One, maybe two because you have those mom superpowers. But get three or more talking at you at the same time, and it's impossible to follow them, to hear what they're saying, and you're ready to pull your hair out. So why are we to assume that somehow Mary has the ability to hear millions of prayers? It's illogical. Of course, we are connected to Mary and to all saints in heaven, but how are we connected? Through Christ. Jesus is the connecting point, And there isn't anyone or anything that should get in the way of that. Again, if you're in Christ, you're as close as you can get to the throne. Furthermore, the New Testament teaches us, that, uh, teaches us to bear one another's burdens. Nowhere are we instructed to enlist the help of dead people. And when things, or dead people, are in the way, it stunts your growth. It impedes it. And this ties into our final point for this morning. As Christians, as the church, what are we called to? World transformation. Dominion. And guess what? That doesn't happen through ascetic practices, through rejecting the good things that God has given to us, of constantly being consumed with do not handle, do not taste, or do not touch. No, dominion comes about by holding fast to Jesus. And this life of dominion is simply but profoundly demonstrated and strengthened when we do what? When we handle, when we taste, when we touch the bread and wine at the Lord's table. You know, the, the kingdom of God is pictured as a feast. Uh, that, that's a common image we find in Scripture. And we even get to drink wine with Jesus. How's that? Well, because we're in Him. We're mature in Him. You know, wine is for grown-ups, and we're grown up in Him. Therefore, we partake of wine, which He also uses to further mature us. And the wine and bread are symbols of dominion. And wherein the Jews were limited by their ABCs, their laws, we have free access to the world. Now, of course, we're not allowed to abuse that privilege, which Paul goes on to address in chapter 3 and following. But Peter's vision in Acts 10 teaches us that the world's been made clean. Christ accomplished that upon the cross. And so there aren't any foods that are off limits. And so in order to take dominion, Christ has given us full and free access to the world, to the cosmos that he's reconciled to himself. And that being true, then we must resoundingly reject the shadows. They serve their purpose. But the fullness and sufficiency has come in Christ and we're called to a fullness of life in this world lived to his glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks for the great salvation that we have in Christ, our Savior and King. We thank you for the position that you have given to us with him in heaven as seated in the heavenly places. And we thank you for the calling you have placed upon us. Even as we follow after Christ, our, our, the author and perfecter of our faith who has gone before us. Indeed, may we do so seeking first your kingdom and its righteousness. And may we do so in seeking to take dominion and to enjoy your good gifts to us. And giving thanks for all things that you bring to us. And for the world that you have made. And for the world that you are redeeming. Grant us a greater vision of faith for these things. And help us and strengthen us to these ends, we ask humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.